What's up, Bitcoiners? This is David Zell with Bitcoin Magazine, and I'm joined by Dylan LeClaire, Director of Research and publisher and author of The Deep Dive, sponsored by Bitcoin Magazine. Dylan, we just had an awesome conversation with Matt Hogan, who was the president and CEO of ETF.com for about a decade and is now the CIO at Bitwise Asset Management. Uh, we talked about a Bitcoin ETF. Uh, we talked about what that means for the Bitcoin space, what it means for the Bitcoin price. We talked about the regulatory hurdles that are being met right now, being overcome so that Bitcoin can be approved uh, as an ETF. What did you think of the conversation? Yeah, I mean, it was really awesome to pick Matt's, Matt's brain, um, you know, kind of just get some maybe some inside info about what what is the, the regulatory holdups, um, you know, hearing about the SEC's review process, kind of the two-tiered uh, system they have there. Um, and, you know, just just really seeing, you know, an inside glance at, at what's going on and, and maybe when an ETF is brought to market and, and the catalyst um, or the price catalyst uh, for Bitcoin, what that would mean. So, um, you know, really exciting interview and I, I think the listeners will enjoy. Yeah, I thought something that, you know, y'all are going to hear this in the interview, but I didn't, did not appreciate the the sort of scale of uh wealth in the United States and in the world that is managed just by investment advisors. Like hearing that that, that 45, 45, 10 split between uh, institutions, RIAs, and then, you know, just individuals themselves. That disparity was, I just didn't realize how much capital was waiting on the sidelines for a different way to get exposure to Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, truly a massive scale, trillions of dollars. Um, and, you know, an ETF coming to market is, uh, you know, probably the biggest bull catalyst um, today. So whenever that happens, watch out. <laughs> All right. Well, enough of us talking. Uh, Matt Hogan, ETF expert, Bitcoin investor since 2015. It's a great conversation. Let's get into the interview. What's up, Bitcoiners? This is David Zell with Bitcoin Magazine. With me is Dylan LeClaire, the research director uh, and publisher of The Deep Dive, sponsored by Bitcoin Magazine. And today with us, we've got none other than Matt Hogan, the former president and CEO of ETF.com and current CEO of Bitwise. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, you spoke at the conference on Bitcoin ETFs. How, how'd, you, how'd you like it? Did you have a good time? I mean, first of all, what an amazing event. What a collection of, of diverse people from, uh, from the smallest retail investor to the largest institutional investor, from people who've been in Bitcoin for almost a decade to people who are new to it. It was, a, it was an energizing, amazing experience. Good job, folks, putting it on. Well, thank you. Uh, so that means we can expect you back in 2022. <laughs> I wouldn't miss it. I wouldn't miss it. I don't think many people are going to miss it. It was quite an event. Quite a galvanizing force for the community. So uh, I'll be there for sure. Well, awesome. So for those of y'all who don't know uh, Matt, Matt, why don't you just take a second, introduce yourself, talk about who you are, your background, what you do in the space. Sure. Yeah. So Matt Hogan, I'm the CIO at Bitwise. Bitwise is one of the largest and fastest growing crypto asset managers. We're, we're best known for having uh, the first crypto index fund, but of course, uh, we also have a Bitcoin-only fund. 
our unique space is that we primarily serve professional investors. So not retail investors, but financial advisors, hedge funds, institutions. Um, I come from a traditional finance background. As you mentioned, uh, David, I was the, the CEO of ETF.com, spent 10 years in that industry. Uh, ETFs are, are a version of mutual funds that trade like stocks. I joined that industry when it was tiny, when people were skeptical of them, uh, when the U.S. government held congressional hearings about them, saw that industry mature into a, a $7 trillion market where everyone now knows and loves uh, ETFs. And so have been in the ETF market for four years now, doing some of the same things at Bitwise. That's wild. I didn't realize there was ETF FUD. Oh, man. It was huge. Financial Times called them weapons of mass destruction. Uh, congressional hearings about whether ETFs were going to destroy American entrepreneurialism. Um, people hated ETFs. People were very skeptical. You know, liquidity doom loops. Many of the same scaremongering tactics you see in the mainstream media about crypto, I saw in ETF land. And now they're like the mother's milk of investing. Now you almost can't touch them. Now they're perfect. Uh, everyone loves them. So yeah, I, I have seen this movie before. There was plenty of ETF fun in the old days. I have a question for you. I'm um, just looking at looking at Bitwise. Um, See, so you have you have a couple different funds. Um, you mentioned you have your Bitcoin only fund. You have your you know your crypto index fund. Um, looking at like the the market price, and then you also have the net asset value. Um, why do you think that Bitwise is trading at a at a premium? Uh, mm -hmm. to NAV versus something like Grayscale, which is trading at a, at a significant discount. Um, and if you want to just explain to for maybe people that are, you know, don't know, how does that differ from uh, an ETF that trades, uh, you know, at net asset value? Oh, uh, it's a great question, Dylan. Yeah. So everyone loves ETFs in part because if it's trading at $40, that means the, the assets that it holds are $40. So a good way to think of it, a very simple ETF that may have uh, similarities to, to, to Bitcoin. A gold ETF will trade at, let's say, $40, and every share of that ETF will be backed by $40 that are in a vault at HSBC in London. And everyone's happy. That's what you want. There is no Bitcoin ETF, as a few people have noticed. And so we're left with these products that have different pros and cons, different imperfections. So what Grayscale and Bitwise uh, and Osprey have done is introduced OTC-traded trusts of private funds. Um, the issue with these trusts is, as you mentioned, they can trade above or below their net asset value. And that's determined by market supply and demand. Uh, obviously, the grayscale products like GBTC for a long time traded at a premium. Now we're trading at a discount. Um, you know, the Bitwise product has historically traded at a premium, but of course it could trade at a discount in the future. That's not something that we control and every investor should be aware of it. Um, it's really hard to say precisely what drives that, um, that premium or discount activity. There's certainly people who have pointed to the launch of Bitcoin ETFs in Canada uh, and the timing of that. But I think the, the, the market explanation is complex um, and it has to do with the unique supply demand behind each of those funds. But I do think it's important for every investor to realize, you know, these premiums and discounts exist and they're volatile. I think everyone is hoping for the day we get a Bitcoin ETF. I know I am, right? It's the intersection of my careers, uh, crypto and, and ETF land. Uh, that'll make it easy. Until then, yeah, you have to wrestle with these issues. And for some people, it's worth wrestling with them. For other people, maybe they want to buy through, through Coinbase or an app. Maybe they want to go directly. 
Um, we're hoping for the days when it's it's super easy and perfect and in, in or not perfect, but super easy in ETF land. Uh, but we're just not there yet. Does your uh, does the Bitwise product does it have a similar uh, like a lockup period as you know something like Grayscale where um, you saw with when Grayscale was trading at a premium you saw a lot of funds try to come in and capture this arb the arbitrage mm-hmm. to, to net asset value and and actually like in the middle of February when it turned negative um, redemptions uh, or you know share kind of creations at uh, with the Grayscale trust basically have completely halted um, because mm-hmm. no one wants to go. Uh, pay a hundred dollars for ninety eight dollars of a of a of a trust, you know. Um, so, does does your trust work in a similar way? Uh, and if so, does that do you think that premium is is driving interest in your in your product? Oh, great question again. Yeah, uh, the, the same core regulatory structure exists in our product as in other OTC traded trusts, which is that when new shares are created, they have to season for a period until they can be released on the market. In the case of uh, our trust, it's 12 months right now. In the case of GBTC, it's six months. You know, Bitwise has announced its intention to follow the regulatory pathway that would allow it to be at a six-month interval, but we don't know in the future. Um, There's certainly people who, who do that trade that you're talking about, the arbitrage trade. There are other people who bribe products just to get long exposure and, and, um, accept the premium as, as, as part or discount or volatility as part of that package. So there are a bunch of different ways and the market is changing. I, I expect it will change a lot in the next year as well. So it's, it's something for people to be aware of. So when you spoke at Bitcoin 2021, your panel was called the elusive Bitcoin ETF, right? Mm-hmm. It's like this thing that, you know, most people who've been tracking Bitcoin, you know, above a casual level, are you know no, have known this is on the horizon for the layperson who does not know anything about ETFs? Why does it matter if there's an American ETF, if uh, if there's a Canadian one, uh, or <laughs> if I could just go buy MicroStrategy? Uh, you know what? For the just most basic level, could you talk a little bit about what a Bitcoin ETF, you know, in the United States is going to do uniquely for investors that you know can't happen anywhere else? Yeah. It's such a great question. It will do two things that are really important. One doesn't matter at all to self-directed retail investors, folks that are buying Bitcoin on its own. And the other one matters a lot. So the one that doesn't matter at all, the the primary reason a Bitcoin ETF is, is important is because most of the wealth in America is not controlled by people who manage their own accounts. It's controlled by financial advisors. Many people's parents or aunts or uncles uh, have a financial advisor that manages their wealth for them. We know that there's a huge income disparity in the U.S. Most of the wealth is concentrated in a relatively few number of people. All of those people or most of those people use a financial advisors and financial advisors aren't going to invest through an app. They just don't. It doesn't work in their workflow. It doesn't work in their systems. Uh, they can't report out on it. They can't charge a fee on it. In order for financial advisors to help their clients access Bitcoin, they need a regulated product like an ETF. So one of the reasons it matters, it was it will open up this huge market, which again, is most of the wealth in America uh, to crypto. And right now it has a very hard time getting to it. The other reason, uh, David, which does matter to everyone, is that ETFs are the fastest way to collapse the costs of accessing any asset. 
Uh, there's a famous ETF analyst called Eric Valchunas who works for Bloomberg, and he calls ETFs the terror dome because anytime you launch an ETF, the fee for accessing it, uh, accessing that market goes down. You can now buy all the stocks in the U.S. for a fee of 0.03% a year, effectively nothing. And yet when we go to buy Bitcoin, we're paying commission spreads that are, what, 1%, 2% regularly through the app space. Uh, the fees of accessing Bitcoin are way too high. One thing an ETF will do, just by the nature of the market it addresses, is collapse those fees. And that will happen not just for the ETF, it will happen in every market. So even investors out there who don't need an ETF, who are comfortable buying it directly or have their own you know, wallet uh, on blockchain or whatever, and, and have plenty of ways to access uh, crypto, will, should, should be rooting for an ETF because it will drive down costs for everyone. So it opens up a huge market, you know, tens of trillions of dollars of wealth to crypto, and it drives down the cost of accessing crypto. And that's why a Bitcoin ETF will be an important moment for, for sort of everyone in the ecosystem. So yeah, that, that all makes sense. Could you, one, one thing I'm interested in, I want to make sure our listeners and our viewers really appreciate is that comment you made about the disparity between uh, sort of wealth and who is doing the investing in the United States. Like we all know there's this disparity, but some of those numbers are just shocking. So could you kind of lay out for us maybe with some numbers or some scale, what it means when, you know, right now you've got uh, a Bitcoin market that you know is driven by by institutional adoption and purchasing in many ways, but hasn't really seen a, a fraction of what that could be with with an ETF. Why don't you kind of scale that yeah. up for us? Uh, yeah, if you think about American wealth, wealth in America as a pie, there are three categories of that pie. There's institutional investors, pensions, endowments, foundations, etc. There individual self-directed investors. These are people who are trading on Charles Schwab or E-Trade or in crypto land, have a Coinbase account. And then there are financial advisors who work at forums like Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch or UBLs, and they manage wealth on the behalf of other Americans. Institutional wealth is about 45% of all wealth in the US. Self-directed wealth, retail investors doing their own money management is maybe 10%. Financial advisors are the other 45%. The financial advisor market is as large as the institutional market, arguably larger, and they can't access crypto today, or at least it's exceptionally hard. A few of them do, uh, a few of them that have clients that really demand it or are true believers do. But there is this giant donut hole in crypto's consciousness of where wealth exists in America. And it's this financial advisor market. It's as big as the institutional market that we've been waiting for for the last 10 years. And it's historically been faster to adopt new asset classes. Um, so I think there is huge demand among financial advisors for access to crypto. Uh, they want it to be easy. They want to help their clients invest in it. Uh, and today they just can't. So yeah, you got to think about it as big as the institutional market is the way to think about this other area of the market. Yeah, another thing I always think about there is I don't think people fully appreciate how many uh, sort of regular Americans financial advisors serve. I mean, everyone who is sort of, you know, a lawyer, doctor, accountant, engineer, I mean, so many, you know, professional class Americans have their wealth, you know, managed by, by these sort of portfolio advisors, by, you know, RIAs. Do you think it's going to have spillover effects? Like, it just seems like this process, and what, what I'm hearing is, you know, 
my third grade teacher is going to be exposed to Bitcoin and is probably going to have to learn about it that, you know, my parents uh, may get, you know, Bitcoin incorporated into, uh, you know, their, their the stuff that is being invested for them by RIAs. Like, what do you think about that sort of demographic shift? Do you think that the ETF for Bitcoin is going to kind of precipitate a, a demographic shift in terms of awareness and acceptance of Bitcoin? I definitely think so. I definitely think so. Because you you have the... Look, wealth is a scary taboo topic in America for many people. A lot of us feel comfortable managing our own wealth. But for many people, the idea of managing your wealth is as foreign as the idea of being your own dentist or your own doctor. It's this whole other skill set and world with all these acronyms and ratios and economic terms that most people don't deal with at all in their day-to-day lives. So they rely on these financial advisors to make sure they're sensibly invested so that they don't go broke in retirement so that they can pay for their kids' college education, so that they can fund their first house purchase for all those reasons. And when this group of financial advisors uh, understand crypto, understand what you can do in a portfolio, and have the ability to access it, all of a sudden, you're exactly right. It's going to open up to market to all of those doctors, lawyers, teachers, firefighter, policemen, who right now have a 0% allocation to crypto. Uh, And they shouldn't and won't be putting most of their money into crypto by any means. I think the average advisor that's going to allocate to this space will be talking to their clients about a 1% to 5% allocation, a very small fraction of their portfolio. But uh, but historically, crypto at that level has been a great addition to portfolios. And I do think, I think it will change the market in a number of ways. The other thing that's different about this market than some aspects of the current class of crypto investors is it's a very long-term oriented market. These are people who are investing for their retirement, right? They're 40 years old. They're going to retire in 25 years and they're making 25-year investments. Uh, And that's a new class of investor that's going to come into the crypto market. People with horizons that are measured in decades uh, and not not in weeks and months. I have, a, I have a couple of questions for you here. Um, so the first is, what do you think the impact is of when an ETF is passed of kind of the normalization of, of Bitcoin as a benchmark? Um, so, so you see like today, you know, if, if you have some active manager, um, he's going to be compared quarterly and annually to the S&P. And, you know, if, if you're consistently underperforming the S&P as a fund manager, then, then maybe I should just go buy an S&P 500 ETF myself and not mm-hmm. give you money to manage with a 2 and 20 fee. Um, and so I guess, how do you think about that? And the second question is more maybe broadly uh, about ETFs and not about uh, Bitcoin, but given your your past as a you know um, the CEO of ETF.com, what potential risks do you think the, I guess, the passive indexation of markets in general uh, present, um, you know, where... You, you know, for the last 20 years, really, you've you've have kind of this this like low, lower and low volatility regime and you have buying at any price. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and then I guess when that unwinds and you have uh, the boomer generation retiring or I guess just in general um, for markets, you have this kind of this this passive dominant um, mm-hmm. force. Um, so how do you think about that? Oh, man, such great questions. First of all, I think the first thing is important. Right now, if you think about uh, an institutional or professional investor building or benchmarking themselves against a portfolio of assets, they can't really include crypto in it because they can't access it easily. So it's not in their benchmark and it's not in their baseline consideration. 
I think once you have an ETF that normalizes the possibility of exposure to this market, you're going to start to see it in some of those benchmarks in the same way you see gold in some of those benchmarks today, right? Some people think like, oh, a baseline portfolio has X percent in gold, uh, and then they can deviate above or below that. So I, I do think it's an important step in terms of normalization. The, the question of passives impact on the market, I think is an interesting one in general. And then I think there's a crypto angle that's a little bit different, which I don't think people always take into account. So let me talk about it generally. Generally speaking, I'm not as concerned about it as many people. There, I should say there are a lot of smart people who are very concerned about it. They're concerned about like voting and governance over companies. If you own all the companies in the S&P 500, are you going to vote for them to be competitive with one another uh, as a shareholder? That's a legitimate question. They're concerned about runaway valuations. That's a legitimate question. I think these are questions worth pursuing. My own read is that we're not at the point where there's enough passive market share that you're seeing real economic distortions uh, beyond the economic distortions you're seeing from the easy money environment inflating um, price ratios to the moon. So I think it's like a future state problem. My just own analysis is we're, we're not there yet. Um, but it's worth thinking about and it's worth worrying about right now. I just don't think it's practical. The interesting, here's an interesting thing about crypto, and this applies specifically to Bitcoin, which I know is, is what you guys focus on. Um, one thing that people in crypto, dis, or a lot of people in crypto discount, not Bitcoin people, uh, Bitcoin specific people, but people in crypto discount is the importance of size and network effects in crypto. So in the equity market, uh, there's, a, there's an academic theory that says if you don't hold the largest companies in the S&P 500, you tend to outperform. And one of the reasons for that is that after a certain point, size in the corporate setting becomes a headwind. You get too big, you attract antitrust regulation, you get too big to scale, there's not enough market to pursue. Uh, it's very hard to keep growing very fast. Um, so size has a capping effect in corporate markets. In crypto, the reverse is true. Size is a deep advantage in crypto, right? Size means security. Size means liquidity. Size means regulation. Size means retail payments. Size means institutional acceptance. And a lot of crypto gets hung up in chasing the newest hot asset because it has better technology specs than some of the large cap assets. And they don't realize that that doesn't matter, or at least it's not enough to overcome the benefits of size and scale. Uh, so one of the reasons I think indexing is great in crypto is because you're you're weighting heavily on assets that have that advantage of scale, assets like Bitcoin uh, and and indeed assets like like Ethereum with different use cases. Um, and I do think people forget that the crypto markets are similar to the equity markets, but an important thing is that this is a purely network effects business. And in network effects business, size really matters. And it's a fundamental advantage. And I think people do overlook that in a, in a significant way. All right, let's take a quick break from that episode. I want to tell you guys about our sponsor. It is Bitcoin 2022 conference. I am sure you saw the videos. You may have been there in person. Bitcoin 2021 was an absolute smashing success. It was the biggest conference in Bitcoin history, crypto history, whatever history of the digital asset sphere. Bitcoin is number one and the Bitcoin 2021 conference is number one with a bullet. It was an absolutely incredible time. I was working my ass off the whole time, but I got to meet so many incredible community members. And I think the best testament to how amazing Bitcoin 2021 was, was 
not just all of the amazing, you know, accolades and, uh, and compliments that I got personally and our team got, but also it's the skin in the game in Bitcoin 2022. We have already sold close to 1500 tickets. That is more than 10% of the people, everyone who went to Bitcoin 2021 have already purchased tickets to Bitcoin 2022. We have not released a date. We have not released a city. We have not released anything. That is the biggest compliment. That is the biggest skin in the game of the community being down for this conference. Bitcoin 2022 is going to be bigger than Bitcoin 2021. It is going to be better than Bitcoin 21 in every single way. And we are going to be bringing you the best opportunity to mingle with the biggest, the baddest, the most Bitcoin people on the planet. So join the revolution. Go to b.tc forward slash conference. Get your tickets today. I don't know what the ticket prices are. They are going up. I think they're $249 right now. We just rolled out fiat ticket uh, purchases. All the tickets purchased before today were all purchased in BTC. So get it, guys. Get it. Get this ticket. Be at Bitcoin 2022. See you there. Bitcoiners, I want to tell you guys about The Deep Dive. The Deep Dive is a new premium newsletter from the Bitcoin Magazine team in conjunction with my man, BTCization, Dylan LeClaire. Dylan is such a multifaceted and wide-ranging analyst. He does everything from on-chain analytics to macro uh, analysis to uh, you know hash rate and all that kind of good stuff. He does it all. He breaks down everything that's happening every single day with his daily dive. He's going to dive into what is happening in the market that day. So that way you don't have to pay attention to Twitter. You don't have to pay attention to anything else. You can just pay attention to the deep dive and he has you covered. And at the end of the week, guess what? You get a weekly recap. And at the end of the month, hey, we have a freaking report, a beautiful PDF breaking down all the activity of that entire month, what it means for Bitcoin, what you can expect moving forward. The Bitcoin market is going to moon. We are here to make sure that we maximize your stack. Go to members.bitcoinmagazine.com to sign up today. And if you use promo code BITS, you can get one month for free. So again, the deep dive, I've been checking it out every day and you should too. Back to the show. Another thing I'd like to ask you um, is, you know, I kind of briefly mentioned the the Grayscale premium discount um, as well as your own fund. Um, and, you know, we recently, like in, in 20, early 2018, got a, a futures curve uh, via CME with, with Bitcoin. What have you been seeing or hearing, um, I guess, from like the institutional side with a lot of these ARB trades, um, you know, with, the, with really the lack of something that can trade at net, net asset value um, and some of the problems that that's presented to maybe players like BlockFi or a lot of these yield lending uh, platforms, you know, just not having, I mean, MicroStrategy or Grayscale, they do have very high correlations to, to you know, the underlying spot Bitcoin price. But um, without really that, that spot tracking vehicle, um, what problems have arisen um, and what have you seen or heard? Yeah. Um, yeah, the way I think of it is twofold, actually. So on the one hand, from an investing perspective, you just have to accept this is an early stage asset class. And so uh, any way that you get exposure to this market today has its imperfections, whether that's through an app, through direct, through a, an OTC traded trust, and you just have to weigh the pros and cons. I think when you think about BlockFi and, and rates in the crypto space, which people have been very excited about getting you know, very significant yields in the crypto space. 
And they've been fueled in part by premium ARB trades and by yield curve trades uh, and by stablecoin loans and things like that. What's been attractive about them is that the rates have been so high. They've been absurdly high. Uh, why have they been absurdly high? They've been absurdly high because they're capital constrained, right? People are afraid to put money into these trades. Uh, they're afraid to fund stablecoin loans because they're not familiar with this market. Not crypto people, but like institutional capital. Uh, and so what's happening to each of these areas where you're seeing yields that you can't get in other capital markets is that eventually they attract enough money and enough attention that the yield goes away. And that's just the way the market works, right? So the premium arbitrage trade uh, that you've talked about has become less lucrative or, or even disappeared, as you mentioned, um, uh, because it, it it became popular. And the same thing is true with like, like stablecoin uh, lending. At some point, the, the, the risk-adjusted return of that should be relatively low if the risks are as low as we all think. It's only been so high because it's been capital constrained. So um, I think it's been great for people who have been able to harvest those, those yields, uh, who, have, who have been able to capitalize on their willingness to look past reputation to reality and recognize the opportunity. But you're not going to have uh, those, those extremely high yields forever, right? As more market capital comes in, it's going to compress. And, and so I think that's, a, I actually see it as a sign of maturity in the market, right? Um, that's what I'm, I'm seeing out there. That's really interesting. And I'm sorry to kind of divert from such a really great grounded technical conversation to just ask you like the, the straight up degenerate question. Mm -hmm. uh, I did some like napkin math uh, during that answer. And it looks like RIAs manage about $5 trillion is what I'm getting from at least this statistic. They're saying that might go up by another $1.4 trillion in, in 2022. So if, I don't know, maybe this is a overestimate, but let's say 5% of RIA managed assets were converted to Bitcoin. Would that be like what, just 300 something billion dollars in Bitcoin investment, like overnight? Like what would that process look like? And is that oh. is that going to get priced in? I mean, do you think that there are a lot of institutions? I'm just trying to get a sense of, do you expect this process of, you know, RIA investment to be gradual and then kind mm -hmm. of all at once? Or do you think that there's a lot of capital that is literally just like on a hair trigger? Just oh, really that's that's a, that's know, a the waiting for the R or waiting for the ETF to happen because I'm wondering like, is that going to be you know should I start like you know could you bet basically like you know is that going to be priced in like if these regulatory hearings start turning favorably for Bitcoin uh, do you think there'll just be like a rally I mean it seems like one of the biggest things for just like short term price action that I could imagine but I want to get your sense since you kind of like have your you know finger on the pulse of this is yeah. it going to be a slow gradual process that takes up or will it be like ETF, bam, billions of dollars are now in Bitcoin? <laughs> Such a great question. The short answer is I don't know. Uh, the longer answer is I, I think it'll be like a punctuated equilibrium. Like there'll be initial, an initial burst of excitement. And then there'll be a long burn where people have to be educated about it before it gets to its mature state. But I will say, like, if you, if you backpedal in the history of ETF applications, the first ETF application was in 2013 from the Winklevoss twins. Uh, and um, there was a real run-up in price before the decision that ultimately delayed that application. So there were people who were pricing in the expected flow into the ETF before it happened. I do think what, what's right about what you said is it's 
If there is a price impact, I do not expect it to occur on T plus one after the ETF launches. Uh, people who are like, oh, I'll just wait till the day the ETF launches and I'll buy it then are fooling themselves. That's not the way capital markets work. Of course, the people will be monitoring regulatory developments. Um, and over time, it, it, the, the, the price should anticipate any inflows that there are. It is, you know, the, the thing about crypto, which is true, which I think you're getting at, is people talk about it as a supply demand market. It's really just a demand market. The supply, we know. Like, there's nothing that's going to change about the supply of Bitcoin that's not already priced. We know what it is. Um, so the real question is, is there more demand? And I think as people re-rate the likelihood of an ETF and the fact that we'll, it will open up a new part of the capital markets, um, I think it, it should generally um, be a good thing. But over what time period, it's really hard to say. It is hard to say because the market prices it in. We could have the same conversation we had around the Bitcoin halving. Uh, and whether it was priced in, when it was priced in, how it was priced in, uh, you can have that around the Bitcoin ETFing. Um, but I do think it's a material uh, thing for people to think about as they think about the mature, maturation of this market. Right. Oh, that makes sense. And I, I remember you saying at the at the conference when you were speaking that this is a process, Bitcoin is undergoing a, a sort of approval process that is atypical for prior you know, ETF applications. Like you sort of mentioned, I can't remember if you actually compared it to like a legal standard, but it seemed like your your insinuation was that the SEC is not looking for a preponderance of the evidence that this is going to work and be okay, but they're looking for sort of assurance beyond a reasonable doubt. <laughs> uh, that was at least sort of what I what I took away from it. So what exactly is holding holding the Bitcoin ETF up? I mean, like I get these tweets, you know, from like Macroscope or some, you know, API that's like, oh, this new SEC filing happened. And like, I, I read it, but I'm not sure the casual or even, you know, engaged Bitcoiner really understands what is being kind of parried back and forth when these applications flow in and the SEC says no. What, what exactly are they waiting on? And what is that timeline? I know you said 2022 at the conference. So mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, timeline aside, what is the sort of mechanism that's going on here? Like what, what, what's happening and when is it going to change? That's a great question. So, so all new ETFs have to go through a series of decisions on whether they satisfy their requirements to list. Uh, the primary one that's holding up Bitcoin is concerns about market manipulation in the underlying markets. Usually like an S&P 500 ETF holds stocks that trade on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, which have established surveillance and anti-market manipulation elements. Crypto doesn't, it trades elsewhere, so it's more complex. That doesn't mean you can't satisfy those concerns. It does mean that it's more difficult. I think what I was talking about was, you know, the, the, the thing about these tests is they're not like a black and white trigger. It's an interpretation of a set of data. And one challenge I think crypto faces is because of its sort of anarchic, libertarian, anti-regulatory origin story, and some of the, the sort of uh, illicit uses that emerged in the very early days of crypto, people are mentally anchored on a view of crypto that isn't a fair approximation of where we stand today. If you were to parrot like an alien coming down from space, looking at this market, would see a market that's fairly institutional that has a significant amount of regulation in place, that has some issues, but is, is maturing in the right direction. But people aren't coming to it from a de novo perspective. 
they're coming at from where they heard about it first. And I think a lot of views are still anchored and in, in 2013 in Mount Gox in, in, in Silk Road. And so all that means is that the amount of data to required to get over is not at the 50-yard line. It, it's maybe at the 75-yard line. And I think that's fine. The flip side of it, which people who are critical of, of the SEC's process don't always hold an honest approximation of, one of the reasons an ETF will be valuable is because the SEC has a high standard for ETFs. If they didn't have a high standard for ETFs, an ETF would not be valuable. So you have to like, you have to accept it. And the SEC is asking good and reasonable questions. It's just that, you know, it's it's taking longer than many of us would like to get over the hump. But I think we'll get there. Yeah, I was going to say, like, do you think any of these, it sounds like these hurdles are are just like time frame. Like, do you think any of them are systemic? Like, is, is it inevitable? Or are there... Or are there any of these hurdles that could actually sort of stop this in the tracks? Um, I don't know. Inevitable is never a great word to use with regulators. Uh, <laughs> nothing is inevitable, uh, and I wouldn't want to put them in a box. But I do think I do think the hurdles were overcome. If you if you flash back to 2013 when the first ETF was launched, there were a huge number of issues that we have overcome. There were no regulated insured custodians. There was no one who could provide liquidity in the space. There were no regulated futures in the space. There weren't audits of the standard that funds need. Those we've 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 overcome, in my view, and I think in the view of many. We just have a few more important um, steps to to come. So I, I do think it'll happen, right? It's already happened in Canada. It's happened in Brazil. It's happened in Germany. It's happened in Switzerland. So regulators around the world are increasingly accepting the idea that there can be Bitcoin ETFs. There are many with many year track record. That doesn't mean the SEC needs to follow suit, but it does mean that these are smart people who are looking at it from an investor perspective, protection perspective and arrived at a particular conclusion. So I do think we'll get there. Before we get back to the episode, I want to tell you guys about Bitcoin Magazine. Bitcoin Magazine is the oldest publication covering Bitcoin, and we've been covering Bitcoin since 2012. Y'all, I'm so proud to be working for Bitcoin Magazine. We spend all day trying to scour the internet for the top news, the top plebs, the top subjects, conversations, everything that has to do with BTC, the asset, BTC, the culture, BTC, the revolution. We are here for it. We are here for BTC and BTC only. And we want to give back to the Bitcoin community. Hit us up if you want to contribute. And uh, yeah, go follow us on Twitter. Go uh, subscribe to this podcast. Go Follow us on YouTube. All of the places that you can find Bitcoin Magazine, we are there. Instagram, Reddit, everywhere. We're there. We're there. Follow us for the best Bitcoin knowledge. Back to the episode. All right. Well, we've been on the subject of, of ETFs for a while, but I know that you are knowledgeable about things beyond uh, ETFs. So shifting gears a little bit, I'm just always like, <laughs> I'm always just like tickled when I hear stories of people in legacy finance switching their careers over to, you know, work in Bitcoin, work in mm -hmm. the digital asset space. Like, it's just kind of, every time I hear a story like that, it's like confirmation that, you know, we're winning. Like, you know, you've got the people that sort of saw a sinking ship and, and jumped for the better one. So <laughs> I have two questions for you. Mm -hmm. One, I'm, I'm sure this moment was different when you first heard about Bitcoin. So what was the moment that it clicked? when you realized, oh, this isn't just something that uh, 
I can just trade and, you know, make a few hundred dollars, make a, make a few thousand dollars, like messing around on an app. Like when did it change for you? When did you realize that Bitcoin was something different, that this was worth, uh, and this space was worth like an entire pivot in, in your career? And, and second of all, what is your investment thesis on Bitcoin? Uh, how has it changed since then? And how do you think it differs from the broader kind of institutional outlook and, you know, Bitcoin theses that, you know, that we hear pretty regularly? Oh, great question. The answer on the, on the first one, um, a lot of people who come from the traditional finance space need someone who grab them by the shirt collars and tell them to pay attention to the space. And that's not just a goofy, uh, you know, pink internet money that's fallen from the sky. Um, for me, uh, it was actually a lawyer on the Winklevoss's first ETF application named Kathleen Moriarty. Kathleen Moriarty, a legend in the ETF space, was the lawyer for the very first ETF in the world uh, and is a good friend. And she said, Matt, this is not just some janky, super volatile currency that you can't use. There's actually an underlying technological uh, thing going on here that's very real and very important, and you should pay attention to it. Uh, and that happened in 2015 for me. And I started paying attention to it. Um, now, I had to ride out through the end of ETF.com's journey, and we ended up selling that company. And then I had to do an earnout. Um, so there was a time gap. But that was when I first started really paying attention to the news, really thinking about what it was and what it could be. And so when I, when I did uh, sell the business and, and, and get to the next phase of my career, it seemed like a natural place to go. You know, I generally think people who from the traditional financial world who approach it through a technological lens and see the uh, unquestionable efficiencies that it brings to the world and speed that it brings to the world tend to have a positive view on it. And you just need someone who, who grabs you and shakes you. Um, my personal investing thesis on Bitcoin specifically uh, is one you've probably heard before. Uh, I think from a, a technical architecture and brand perspective, Bitcoin has a lock on the digital gold narrative. And I think the digital gold narrative alone is enough to justify an investment in Bitcoin. In other words, I think Bitcoin's technology is perfect and can't be, not perfect, uh, it seems to be well optimized to serve the use case of digital gold. And it's unlikely to me that something will disrupt that. And I think a digital non-sovereign store of value has a place in the world. And that alone is enough to justify it at its current prices. The wonderful thing about Bitcoin is you get so much other potential as a free rider on that core digital uh, gold narrative. It, it strikes me a little bit like buying preferred shares in a company where you get the first right uh, of, of return and then you also get additional upside. So my personal thesis on Bitcoin specifically is well-optimized to serve the digital gold narrative that alone is a multi-trillion dollar market. Um, find it hard to think of an asset competing with it. And I get all the other potential use cases and applications on top of that, whether that's as a currency or as a use of, of international trade, uh, as a non-sovereign non alternative to sovereign currencies. Um, and those are potentially very large markets as well. So I love it. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've a broader thesis on crypto, but that's it. That's it for gold for me. And it, it, I mean, for, for Bitcoin for me, and it makes it very easy to feel comfortable with a long-term allocation. Uh, do you think, uh, you mentioned earlier, um, you know, kind of the SEC's worries or potential worries about an ETF. 
Do you think there's anything more to that with, um, you know, we're kind of, we may be at this inflection point with the U.S. dollar, the world reserve currency. There's a lot of talk about CBDCs and what they may or may look like. And there's a lot to figure out on that front. Um, do you think the SEC may be potentially dragging their feet for more reasons than just, uh, you know, regulatory certainty uh, on the inner workings of an ETF, but rather, you know, maybe bigger picture, um, you know, the dollar and and that sort of front? Because you, you do see products like triple levered bear oil <laughs> futures and mm-hmm. volatile VIX ETFs and all this, which... Um, from my angle, make me question some of the SEC's uh, stated worries. Uh, so right. do you think there is something maybe more there uh, or not? What, what could go wrong, Dylan? Um, uh, uh, do, do I, uh, I think the answer is, so I'm going to give a curious answer that may surprise you. I think the answer is we don't know yet. Um, there are two layers to the SEC. There's the, uh, the SEC staff which are career lawyers who review items. And then there's the SEC commissioners who dictate the agenda and vote on final decisions. Um, the Bitcoin ETF applications have currently run a shoal uh, with the staff. And the staff is, um, is, is extremely diligent um, career lawyers interested in securities regulation. And Bitcoin ETF applications haven't yet satisfied their technical concerns. There may be Another layer of concern, even one we want post post satisfying these technical concerns um, that exists in the broader uh, treasury organization or or something. Uh, I don't I don't discount that as, I guess, a possibility. But I I really actually do think Bitcoin ETFs have not yet applications have not yet satisfied those technical concerns to even get to that greater layer. I know a lot of people in crypto don't believe that. Um, because you can look at at triple levered uh, or, or VIX ETFs down ninety nine point nine nine percent, and wonder you know how is that investor protection? Um, but but it really is these these sort of technical requirements. You can think of almost as a specification document, and you have to prove a certain number of things, and they're they're hard to prove um, in crypto. So I do think we'll get there. I do think we'll get there. Very interesting. Thanks. Yeah. All right. So. As we close things out, uh, one more question, uh, just to put you on the spot, Matt. Uh, 2022 was your prediction at the conference. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you gained new information that's altered that prediction? <laughs> uh, there's new information every day. So there's new information every day. But I'm not, I'm not changing my prediction right now. Not a guarantee, just a prediction, but... Uh, yeah, I, li- I like I like 2022. All right. Well, we'll see if the uh, the market factors in Matt Hogan's prediction of 2022 <laughs> into the Bitcoin price. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for uh, joining us. This was a fantastic uh, interview. I think people got some great firsthand knowledge from an industry expert on on an ETF and what that means. And hopefully we don't have to keep calling it elusive. Maybe next year your panel can be talking about the impacts of the new Bitcoin ETF that just launched. There you go. Fingers crossed. All right. <laughs> well, thanks so much Fingers for joining us, Matt. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. This is great. All right. Thanks, have man. a good one. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. 
You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.